Have you ever thought about how our world is being shaped? Where are we headed and what might we leave behind? You're listening to Nextcasts, presented by Swissnext San Francisco, where we examine the forces shaping our emergent future through conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, artists and designers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our final episode of our Space Science in Switzerland podcast series. In this episode, we interview Daniel First, Vice President of External Relations from Swiss company Ruag Space, who explains their involvement in the Mars mission. And finally, we end the series with Jean Kogan, an artist currently working in Mars-like conditions in the California desert, developing a new type of society. We end this series bridging space, Switzerland and California and leave audiences to imagine what it would be like to actually colonise Mars and develop a new society. Daniel First, Vice President, External Relations, Ruach Space. You are our guest today. Thank you for being part of this of, of this conversation and taking your time. So Ruag is a big holding, very strong space. So what is Ruag Space's role within the Ruag Holding? Well, we are we are actually we are the, the space branch of this technology company. And maybe here one important thing is to say that Ruag has been separated, right, in 2020. So the the, the military branch for the Swiss military has been separated from the rest, which is called now Ruag International which consists of all the other technology branches like air structures for civilian aircraft, for example, or space as, as the space company of Ruach International. How did we get there? Yes, it has partly been growing. When Ruach was founded some maybe 15 years ago or so, Ruach did already some little space activities, mainly for a company called Contraves or later than Ericon integrating launcher parts. And Ruach has then acquired that in Switzerland and has also acquired other companies in Finland, in Sweden, Austria, in Germany, and then also even built sites in the USA, Titusville, Indicator, and so on. We were growing both organically and by acquisition into what we are today. I would say uh, at least Europe's largest independent equipment supplier and for sure the biggest space company in our sites in Switzerland, in Sweden, Austria and in Finland. Absolutely. So it was a Swiss company, but it became an international company, obviously. Yes, by buying these branches and by investing in new uh, endeavors in, in the US also. It's an important part. Yeah. So if I ask if Ruach space is still, or the or the topic space is still a niche or actually a growing sector, I guess you will go with the second part. Absolutely. A niche, I, I would even say, is, is the wrong word. Space is every day's life. You're using space all the time. Probably right now you're using space while we speak together from continent to continent. Uh, you need satellite even and more and more for our telecommunication, but for a lot of other applications down to earth. Navigation is a topic, you're using GPS and there are others like Galileo and so on. But 
Other things are coming up, smart farming, environment monitoring from glaciers to oceans, from atmosphere to the ground. Everything is monitored through space and, and this creates a lot of, of applications down to Earth. And this is why we're doing it. We're not doing it because we are all space nerds or we, lo we love the technology. We do that, but we're doing it for the application down to Earth. You were, you were actually mentioning environment and climate, basically. That was one of my questions. When you, you know, you are a supplier, right? And when you create new, new tools to for your clients, basically, for your um, customers, is that ever a subject I wanted to say, ask? You know, if you discuss new forms to do new things, new, new inventions or bring them alive, is environmental protection or climate change ever a discussion or part of your discussions or even maybe a deciding factor of what you are doing and how you are doing it? So this question has, has several uh, facets to it. First of all, Senso Stricto, because we are a supplier, we participate to missions. Someone else usually defines the mission. Now, this is not black or white, obviously, especially in Europe, we can influence the program of important space agencies. Because we are in contact with decision makers in our countries, with space agencies, and we discuss together where would it make sense for a country to invest into space missions. Considering both aspects, that the national political one, what do I want to achieve? Where, where, where do I need information? Climate change, environmental elements, or in Sweden, a lot of Arctic-related specific issues in, in regions where, where not many people live, getting information there. That's one hand, that's the more national aspect. On the other hand, what we can do must fit into those strategies, right? So we have to exchange, we have to see, and, and then countries will decide whether they put the money in or not, because they want, obviously, also their industry and their scientific institute to benefit from that. Do you see what I mean? So it's going to both ways, yeah. But yes, we discuss, we discuss a lot. At the end, we are then an equipment supplier. Sometimes we, it's, it's, it's bigger, it's kind of subsystem we can provide, like solar rings that are complete from, from little mechanisms to the, to the solar cells or launch parts that we do. And sometimes it's just equipment. You have a very close collaboration, I think, with NASA, with the National Aeronautics mm -hmm. and Space Administration. Do you also collaborate with private companies such as SpaceX or space agencies of other countries? Yes, we cooperate with a lot of different companies and agencies worldwide. Agencies, probably the biggest cooperation we have, this is our heritage and today is still our largest customer. NASA is growing with our growing presence in the U.S. also our projects together with NASA and US companies are growing as well. And then there are smaller space agencies in Europe, like Sweden has one, Austria has one. Those are technology projects, smaller projects, we speak them of. Those are not big projects for us then, and this is happening too. So we have a large variety. How is uh, Switzerland or better Ruax space involved in the newest Mars mission? which is landing um, uh, in 2021. So the very latest one, Perseverance, that is launched in this summer, was launched, is still uh, on its way to Mars, right? 
there we we participated through our launcher ferry. So the, the, the rocket which launched the mission has a structure that we call payload ferry, which is basically protection of payload of the satellites through the travel through the Earth atmosphere. Now, there is a lot of noise, of friction, of heat, of whatever, and you need to protect that satellite. So you can say the top of the rocket that has launched that mission is coming from Switzerland. So Switzerland was the first thing that went into space on the top. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. For, for, for that mission, it's not much more coming from us. That's an important one. <laughs> it's a very important one, absolutely. But we have, on different NASA missions, we are present with other elements, with other products. For example, with our um, navigation receivers on different scientific missions or Earth observation missions of NASA. Let's take ISAT as an example, which is exactly an Earth observation satellite observing, observing the evolution of glaciers, of ice shields, of how does that also impact the environment and that's the, the goal. We are providing there these navigation receivers, which is very important instrument to localize the satellite in space, which you need to be able to clear, to know where where you can measure and to position yourself and to, to measure the right spot and so on. So this is an example of what you're doing. We are providing also mechanisms, especially solar array, array drive mechanisms. As these are mechanisms that will deploy the, the solar array. You know, the solar array is, is where a satellite gets its energy from. And, it's, it's, and this is folded during start and when the satellite is in space and then it's unfolded you need to unfold that and then you have to turn it all the time towards the sun to optimize the energy that you need to operate the satellite so these these kind of mechanisms we are also providing or we have provided for nasa missions in the past and sometimes we have other other structures that link a payload which which is what we call a satellite a payload to the launcher, you have to fix it together. And once you, you want to undo, you have to separate it. And both products are, are coming from us, not That's all That's amazing. That's it's amazing. Big. I mean, there's so many different fields uh, you're covering there. Yeah, yes. Are you, are you very excited, you know, especially like, for example, the tip of the rocket, which is first basically going into space. Uh, did you watch the launch, the most recent uh, Mars mission launch? Not that one. I've been watching other launches. Actually, I must admit, I have never seen a US launch yet. I have oh, seen wow. uh, launches from uh, Kourou, which is the European space port in French Guiana. And I've been there sometimes and uh, it's super impressive. You have, yes. if you can, <laughs> you, you have to watch that once. It's, it's, yes. but okay, I'm, I'm a bit a nerd, maybe that, that <laughs> dimension, right? It's cool. No, no, I can imagine it's amazingly exciting, especially if you know, oh, this part is actually coming from us. I was responsible, how, yeah. you know, this was put together. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, really and nice. Huh? I mean, those things are huge. This is thousands and thousands of, of meters high, only ours, our structure impressive but the, yeah there must be a proud also with your colleagues right who are actually working hand hands on on those tools it must be a, a certain proud to you know yes it's always yeah i can imagine and and, and there's always also tension because once you go 
there is no oh I forgot my my phone at home let's turn around and 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 then you leave again an hour later no I mean you go you go and and there is a lot of crucial elements like like our payload fairing if it doesn't open when it has to and if it doesn't separate well the mission is lost the satellite can't go out and and it's over so there's always a lot of 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 tension and proud also once once uh, you succeeded Right. And we always did it so far on the on the on these uh, payload ferries. Obviously, a lot of uh, responsibility uh, putting you know these things together because they're very expensive. You know, they are connected to so many different aspects which might you know touch our lives basically, right? Our daily lives, especially. You know, that was actually one of my questions. You know, Ruach Space is Europe's largest independent space supplier, which brings mm -hmm. possibilities. And at the same time, it increases the responsibility. And what I want to come to talk about is the space debris, mm -hmm. which are made of very old rocket stages, failed satellites, or the product of satellite explosions, trackable uh, from ground are over 23,000, I was told. These are about 10 centimeter in size. Mm -hmm. The smaller, easily trackable from ground, supposed to be in the 700,000s. I was told by Muriel Richard, she is the project manager at Clean Space One at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, short EPFL, that a collision between a one centimeter debris and a satellite kills the satellite. A collision between a millimeter size of debris will create a hole in a window of a space shuttle, for instance, which is which was for me like an eye opener, right? Hearing that. You don't want that. It, you don't want to have you don't want that to happen exactly yeah. so there are several projects trying to clean up space because there's obviously an issue up there especially because of the danger that the working satellites you were mentioning that at the beginning of our conversation the working satellites can be affected that's me that means our gps our internet and so much more of our lives can be um, can face this danger so are you involved in supporting any of these cleaning projects the answer is clearly yes but let me develop a little bit also on that one because it it's everywhere, the topic right now. It's a growing concern. You said it, the more objects you, you put into space, the higher the risk will be that you get into a collision. And it's not only man-made objects that we, we have to consider. I mean, most of those objects are also are natural, right? So meteorites is, is also destroying a satellite. So there are different ways to cope with that. The classical one, the one, the only one that we managed to do so far is observing from ground, knowing where those objects are, and then escaping with your satellite once such an object object gets close to you. This this works, obviously, the, the bigger an object is, the easier it is to, to see, to track it, and to calculate where it will be at what time. An International Space Station, I've been told, does evacuation moves probably weekly, but I don't know what distance, but we are speaking of thousands of kilometers when they start, you know, seeing it as a risk and they, they, they prefer to do it. So you can get more and more precise in this kind of measuring and doing analytics. And with that, you will reduce, you know, the, the number of times you have to, to escape. That's one way of doing it. Another way, is to clean up and to go there and, and get these, these debris down. Then obviously we speak of, of, big, of bigger debris, 
it makes sense to get satellite back when whilst they are entire not working. Yeah, right. and not working and then you get them out of somewhere you do that especially there where the risk of collision is high or higher because depending on the orbit the orbits are our orbits are more or less crowded there are orbits that are they're really you almost have to compete with, with other satellites to get your place typically this is true for telecommunication satellites but those are far far away at 13 36000 kilometers they are over the equator and they typically over antennas they always point at the same place in space this is because there is a satellite but over a big city, several providers want to have satellites, so they, they, they like to have the same spot. And, and this is where it gets crowded. Now, ideally, those kind of places, once a satellite is dead, you have to free them. How, how can you do that? And then there are other orbits and then lower orbits where with this constellation business, which is, which is new, the, the new way of doing it, put up a lot of satellites that circle around in a lower orbit and here too, you, know, you should ideally be able to, to get those to get rid of those satellites once they are you know. So you can get up and grab that. And there is a, a mission, an ESA mission we are participating to, which is called Adrios, which has the goal to send a satellite up, to grab another other satellite and, and to get it back to Earth. And we are in that project as well, with a spin-off also of the EPFL. And Muriel will be able to tell you a lot more because she's involved there. The purpose of space is not cleaning up space. The purpose of doing space is getting information and transmission of information and doing science and bringing information back on tour, observing the earth. Uh, there, there are several you know, things you can only do from space. That's the purpose, uh, not cleaning up. But in order to be able to do that, because this information is strategic for a modern state. You need, you know, you cannot have tomorrow no GPS anymore, or no telecommunication, or no weather forecast. You need to have. Would it would quite a bit different our lives? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you need to take measures in order to have this information secured, and this is why we're doing it. You can also have today a new satellite, kind of an escape system, automatic when it's clinically dead. It should still be able to come down in a certain amount of time or go out. You can also go away. You can also go out of, of Earth. There's uh, quite a bit of space there, yeah. There is a lot of space and the risk of collision gets smaller. Yeah, I mean, you're probably right when you say it's not the first goal to clean up space. You know, we are yeah. using it for other information to get for Earth and for our lives to make it better or understand our future better. But of course, um, if it causes problems, which is the case right now, and that's why so many holdings and countries are having a focus on that, then we have to clean up first. I mean, what we did on Earth, let's not do that in space. <laughs> no, we should not. We should learn our lessons, but that's a philosophical question now. Yes, that is that is indeed true. Yeah. So you are probably working with universities, and I would like to know if you would mind talking about it a little, little bit about your collaboration with universities and mm -hmm. how important are these collaborations for you and why? Yes, it is important. We are, and probably space is an example of cooperation between industry and scientific institutes that, that is very good. And since the very beginning of space, the classical thing would be for a, a scientific mission or an exploration mission, even for Earth observation, often 
the mission is defined by by science. The goal, the, the, the way they, are, they want to do it, the specification of the instrument they need, this is designed by the scientists. They say how a telescope shall look, what they want to measure, what technology they want to use. Or if it's not a scientist, then it's at least someone close to science in a technology field. And industry then is to build that. We are the ones that can build a telescope to the specifications and the scientists are, are providing that. That's the classical thing, right? But we also have to understand it's also about knowledge, knowledge-based society. Countries like the US or Switzerland, very much Switzerland, and to say so, depends on, on a high level of education, of its high quality universities and common projects create fertile ground to, to evolve in that in that environment. I mean this is an important, I would say, element of the of the success of the Swiss system to happen. And then also for us, we need highly qualified engineers in, in our companies. So once we work with the scientific institutes and with its students and PhDs, not seldomly we hire them. We get them on board with us and, and there are numerous examples with all kinds of universities in Switzerland where we have then hired these people. This is how the system works and th there's maybe one other aspect, I mean, you need budgets also, institutional budgets for this institutional mission. I'm not speaking about telecommunication, but all, all these science missions or a lot of Earth observation missions, those are institutional missions paid by the taxpayer. In long term, long term projects, right? Long-term projects, long-term, yeah, and 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 here, it's we are working together. So science and industry have the same goal. We tell them what we do, and you tell them, you get knowledge, you get information, but you get also highly qualified workplaces here in our industry. You get return on investment. Companies that are able then to leverage that that taxpayers' money into commercial success. So, so this is a fruitful environment and we have to do this speech together and we do that. So, yes. Especially, I mean, you, you said uh, lots of new universities in Switzerland, that is uh, absolutely right. Especially ETH Zurich and EPFL have a strong presence in space-related projects. What do you think does this mean for Switzerland as a center of, of an education or, you know, Switzerland as an education hub? Do you think that makes it also more interesting for international students from all over the world to come and want to study here? Absolutely. And, and we see that these, these kind of projects are popular and there's a lot of interest in participating to, uh, to such projects. I like to say the two institutions, ETH and, and EPFL, obviously are very active, but there are others too. University of Bern just won two Nobel Prizes or a Nobel Prize in physics. Two persons won the Nobel Prize in physics in, in space-related projects. And these people are still working in space missions together with the University of Bern and Geneva. So there are other universities active in space. It's a very, yes. very rich environment. And a lot of missions where Swiss institutions participate are, are going on. These are just Thank the you. There are others. Right, absolutely. No, thank you for mentioning that. 
I think we are coming almost to, to the end of the questions and the discussion. But my last question would be, how can we, as the Consulate General of Switzerland in San Francisco and Swiss Next San Francisco, support you to build a platform for your work and to widen your contacts here in the US? I was thinking about that and where you can be very helpful and add value is in helping us getting closer to political decision makers. I think business-wise, still the space environment is, you know, we're not speaking about cars, it's spaceships, and you know each other. Business-wise, we have our contacts, but there's institutional money involved, and then behind that there are always politics. And with us growing in the, in the US now, the importance for us to get closer to these decision makers. I could imagine that Swissnext could, could help us. I remember we had a, uh, that was in Washington though, so not, in, not, not in San Francisco. There was a space and, and air day or something organize, organized by the embassy some years ago and very participated. And then you can also invite your stakeholders that you know already, but you will be able to meet others and so on. That was very fruitful. I mean, this could be repeated, right? Could, Absolutely. Could think about something. And Absolutely. <laughs> we, we know how important technology in that area. It's, it's no hazard that you are in San Francisco and we could no, think thank about you. That. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. And I'm happy as the Consulate General of Switzerland and my colleagues at SwissNext San Francisco to work towards that direction and share these thoughts also with the embassy in DC. Daniel Fürst. Vice President, External Relations, Ruach Space. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for joining us, Jean. It's great for our audience to have you here on our podcast series that is exploring the role of Switzerland in space and science. If you could start by introducing yourself. Uh, my name is Jean Kogan. I'm an artist and a programmer. I work a lot with emerging techniques in artificial intelligence, also more recently decentralization tech. And more recently, I've also gotten interested in building residential communities for artists to hang out in the wild and kind of learn how to live sustainably, which is where I am speaking to you from right now. And that's called Mars College. That's great. It's great to have you speaking directly from the California desert. We are based in San Francisco. SwissNext is a, basically Switzerland's outpost for science, technology, innovation, and the arts. In this podcast series, we've been exploring Switzerland's role in space exploration and also the idea of living in a world where society is dreaming of colonizing Mars. But it's interesting that Mars College is kind of this idea of a new type of society here on Earth and here in California where and can you explain your thoughts behind it and how it came about yeah Mars College kind of so we started with something like a test pilot of sorts that we called Brahman um, last year that standard stands for Bombay radical artificial humanist media arts Nexus it's, it's a bit of a satirical backronym kind of thing but but basically that was our first that was sort of a test pilot of this program we my partner in organizing this Freeman and I kind of had this had this idea to try to bring a whole bunch of artists together in some relatively long-term, you know, a few month residency out here in the desert. And the intention is to kind of learn together how to live a sort of interesting and creative and lively life in a very sustainable way. Here, we don't get very much in the desert. It's, I mean, there's nothing out here. And so we have to kind of build 
space from scratch that we that we use for all of our events and, and study groups and just hanging out in also and places to, to live and sleep and eat and shower and all that gives us kind of a primer on, on the basics of life that you kind of take for granted a lot, but ends up being a very, very cheap life. So I think I can speak from experience, maybe not recently more like when I was a younger artist, I was I was always just really running out of money. And so, and so it would be one job to the next. And that really distracted me from some of my bigger goals. And so the idea, and not everyone here, here is, is an artist by any means, but there's definitely an arts focus here and especially a tech arts focus. Yeah, and, and Freeman and I go way back. So my co-organizer here, he's been building communities like this for a really long time. And I met him in, in India where he was, he'd spent something like 15 years and I was traveling through India. And, and so this kind of grew out of that. The program I'm referring to is called Jaga. And so that's based in India, J-A-A-G-A. And then my take on it was that I, I was interested in kind of bringing some more activity to this kind of a lifestyle. I'd been doing a lot of workshops. So for me, um, prior to Mars College and still ongoing, but certainly prior to Mars College, I spent a couple of years giving workshops on machine learning for artists. And that was that was almost like a full-time pursuit for a couple of years. I did workshop all over the world, including one at Swiss Next. And, and one, one of the things that I kind of observed in my workshop practice was, like, I, I really love doing my workshops, but to take the next step would be to make something that was a little bit more long-term, goal-focused kind of, you know, because workshops are kind of usually transactional. You know, some students want to learn something, and so they hire a teacher basically to, to teach them. And, and that can be really great and rewarding, but I was kind of interested in what happens if you kind of have a long workshop with for, for a few months and in a, a community where you live together, and are really, really kind of responsible to each other for forming, for making it worth being in this place that's otherwise quite boring and cold and remote. <laughs> and and so that to me, this this to me is a little bit of a step in that stage of, of my workshop practice, which is to, to try to make it a much more goal-directed kind of long-term, something with a beginning, middle, and an end, not something that takes place over one day, but something that can be ongoing. And so this is kind of the hybrid of those things, you know, the sort of desert punk lifestyle, I'm living sustainably in the desert, being very DIY, along with this kind of technology and arts focus and we're really they seemed like two different worlds and to some degree they are but i've always felt they're very complementary because if you're if you're redesigning your life from the bottom up from scratch i think it really you want to kind of empower yourself with technology you don't want to be a passive consumer of technology but you you want to you want to actually repurpose reappropriate these super powerful techniques from computer science that that i'm super fascinated in to things that are actually making your life livable and sustainable, you know. So using that, using that, for example, like like if you're learning machine learning, it's a skill that you can use to improve your own sort of community. You know, you can apply it to problems that you have right where you are. You can also use it, for example, to work remote. So we're also all interested in this remote work phase that we're entering. And so, you know, a lot of artists have this question, like, how can I earn a sustainable living while living in this artist community? Because, of course, like if you have a, a job somewhere, it's, it can be very, very difficult to balance those things. And so we're all interested in these these kinds of skills. Probably a, a long answer, probably a super long answer to your first question. Yeah. No, it's like really interesting like to hear your perspective and, and your insight on kind of what type of mindset is required to think about and create a different way of living 
in society, which is Mars College. But then also it's really good to hear you talk about the technology and tools that you need to help you get there. And I think that's also something that is when we're thinking as a global society about potentially colonizing Mars, like we need people to be able to think about what do we actually need to get us there, but also how can we live sustainably in an area, in a, in a place that is quite desolate, which we are experiencing um, in the Californian desert right now. Can you talk a little bit about the people and the skills they have in you need to build this, both from like the artist and also the more practical perspective? Well, building all of this progresses in layers. So the first thing that has to happen is you kind of set up a base camp and you build some structures. So Freeman is really has this practice of building large buildings like this out of pallet racks, which is normally used for warehouses and and things like that. And it's a really creative use for pallet racks to actually use them for all these things that we're doing with them. And they're, they're really great because you don't need any heavy equipment for them. Well, okay, I'm getting off on a tangent. To answer your question, the skills that are sort of needed start with DIY skills, carpentry, you know, setting up some kind of a, a power system. So we're using a lot of solar power here. So having some knowledge on how things like power, water, electrical, internet, which we're all big fans of here, being able to set up raw infrastructure. So there's a lot of people here who are very skilled in the art of survivalness, survival uh, training, wilderness, setting up temporary and, and more permanent structures. Then on top of that, I guess I would start with sort of this, this as a base layer. And then once we're kind of done building, which we roughly are now for this season, then we have a sort of comfortable life out here. We can focus on going up the stack of life skills. And so we get into more, you know, more abstract things like that, that artists and tech- technologists are interested in. We're really, we're all very internet savvy. So we do a lot of interesting experiments with our local network. There's skills, there's tech skills, there's a lot of art skills here. There's people who are more, more in the fine arts, painting, sculpture. There's there's a lot of spray painting going on. And then there's people who are tech art focused like myself. It's really it's hard to summarize because there's quite a diversity of skills here. And so then we, we kind of have this uh, idea of creating workshops for each other. So it's a little bit unconference style where all of the participants who are living here are pitching workshops and talks and and activities and kind of projects to each other and then we have events around that how many people yeah in our camp we're we're about 40 including myself there's about 40 people here and about 20 of them are are kind of living on mars full-time and then the other 20 are actually like kind of commuting to mars from around the mile away in the nearby town so we're, we're sort of we're like a little bit off grid but we're actually not too far away from um you know from normal streets and sewers and electricity and stuff like that and so some people are kind of commuting um and and then yeah about half of the our group is is living is just permanently living on mars Did you collaborate with any other local organizations in the process of bringing this together? Not not for organizing the camp here because there is nothing local (laughs) in the desert. But we are, the way we chose this location though originally was there's a town which is called Bombay Beach. And it's kind of a, a little bit of a notorious town if you if you're maybe from California and hanging out with art circles. There's and so we know some of the organizers. Um, we're friends with some of the organizers of Bombay Beach Biennale, which is this kind of 
currently it's inactive mostly because of because of covid but it's this kind of it was for a couple of years a yearly art festival that would happen over a few days and so that kind of brought us out here there was already a little bit of a community out here that's a bit transient but definitely really interested in this area specifically for many reasons which we could get into well right now like i said the biennale is not happening but we're collaborating with the organizers of trying to to bring more activities to their community we're also another thing is one of our one of our core group people a good friend of mine who's an artist named philip stearns and he actually just began to direct uh, an organization called bombay beach arts and culture bbac which is pre-exists us. So that was that was originally, I mean, that's still another organization. It's an independent organization that's based in Bombay Beach. And so because of that, we have super extensive interaction with Beback. He just started there. So it's it's mostly just kind of plans right now. I mean, for the most part, he's kind of dealing with just overhauling the space right now. But eventually the goal is to have activities there as well. Because Be Back is directly in town, it's a lot more it's a lot more focused on it, especially once the conditions allow for it for for kind of public events with residents of Bombay Beach. Be back used to at some point used to have a lot of kind of like, you know, community evenings and activities there. And I expect that it will in, in the future. For this iteration of Mars College, by design, by choice, actually basically don't interact with the town right now because of COVID. We brought 40 people here in the midst of a pandemic. So it's it's actually like we had to be really, really cautious and say like everyone here is everyone here is accepting the risk for themselves, of course, like uh, all of us, the 40 of us. And we, we did took a whole lot of measures to to contain the risk, but absolutely no one. For people that are not part of our group, no one consents to to being put at risk. And so for for this iteration, we are basically by design closed off. I really hope when the pandemic subsides that we are able to to actually return to town and and kind of try to try to do more things there. Yeah, definitely hopefully that happens sooner rather than later. Yep. Mm-hmm. Is there a story behind the name Mars College that you can tell us? It's a really simple one. This, place the the property that we're on which is in the desert um we just call it mars we're actually not even sure who among us kind of first first started using it we have always been just calling it mars and it you know it's a desert it's kind of it's not necessarily very rocky but it's very barren landscape and you know there's there's some mountains in the distance and so it just kind of reminded us of mars and then the college aspect is that we view this in some ways, although I've mostly described it kind of as an artist residency, there's there's also like something of a collegiate aspect to it because, you know, we bring a whole bunch of people here for a specific time period, like a semester. And the goal is once the building is finished to have classes and workshops and, and to really do a lot of learning. And in the future, we can even see this growing into something that that really is like an alternative to, to um, you know, a proper so to speak, university, you know, we're all hopeful that that it presents itself as such, you know, and I think think these days, you know, especially with universities being all remote and online, it feels like a good opportunity to, you know, disrupt the, the way that we normally do college. The whole system, definitely. Definitely. Well, it's so interesting to hear your insights on, on how you can structure a new community. So thank you so much for sharing the information about Mars College. And I wish you all the best in the in the build. And I'm excited to learn more about it. Where can people find out about it? Uh, Mars.college. So that's that's basically the program. We also have kind of a, a sister program of sorts called Mars.radio 
which is something we worked on a little bit more actively a year ago, but we're planning to resume. And that's kind of more the online component. That one is still kind of you know, we're growing into that, but there's um, there is some information there, Mars.radio. But Mars.college is for this program, specifically Mars College. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And that concludes our podcast series on space science in Switzerland. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey. 